So, uh, thanks everybody for joining us. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. I am your host, Owen Higgins, as always. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine and the nuclear war, uh, which is, I think, higher at this point. Um, it, it feels, at least to me, that it's higher uh, at this point than at any other time in the last three decades. I wrote about this a little bit at the newsletter. You can find that at owenhiggins.substack.com, E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S.substack.com. Um, I'm just going to kind of review a kind of some of the things that I said. You know, it's only been about a week. It's been a week tonight, I think, since the war began. And the potential for escalated conflict has been floated on numerous occasions. Uh, Russia declared itself in a state of nuclear readiness, further inflaming the situation, as you'll recall. That was over the weekend when they said that they were uh, – and, and Alice can correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, kind of ready for anything to happen, as it were, and kind of expecting that they would be uh, encountering some kind of a first strike from U.S. or NATO or both. Um, whether or not this was serious or just propaganda is kind of beside the point. The uh, the point itself was made. And uh, the conflict, and this is Alex uh Quoting, I'm quoting from Alice from a conversation via DM that, quote, naturally ties into nukes when you were talking about the possibility of Russia and NATO in such close proximity, close quote. And so basically what the Russians have been doing is just pushing the envelope in this game of brinksmanship, and that's aimed at expanding the parameters of what's allowed with the nuclear threat as, as backstop. And, and despite, you know, the, the back and forth between Russia and the West over this war and the broader conflict that's been raging for decades since the USSR fell, there have been indications that there is a possibility for de-escalation here rather than further escalation. Uh, but the entrenched positions of both sides and the rapidly deteriorating condition of the diplomatic situation raise questions as to whether or not any off-ramp may be provided for Russia so they can withdraw and save face. Obviously, that's what we all hope. But without any such off-ramp to hostilities, it's hard to see the incentive for Putin and the Russian government as a whole to back down. And the West doesn't seem inclined to accept anything less than total withdrawal or capitulation at this point. Of course, that could change uh, as, as, as negotiations and diplomacy go on. But you know, to, to discuss this further and to give us you know, more of an idea of the details of the conflict and uh, and and the, the general sense and state of nuclear uh, threat. I'm joined by Alex Wellerstein. Uh, Alex is a professor, um, uh, associate professor and director of science and technology studies at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. He's been a nuclear historian for about 20 years, PhD from Harvard, and creator of the Nuke Map, the world's most popular website for visualizing nuclear weapons effects. I'm also joined by Jessica Slate, or Slate, sorry, uh, and Jessica is the uh, junior partner for strategy and policy at Global Zero, the international movement for the elimination of nuclear weapons, where she provides research and analysis on issues relating to nuclear policy, risk reduction, and uh, Disarmament. He, she's also a member of the 2020 Center for Strategic and International Studies Project uh, on S Nuclear Studies Mid-Career Cadre. So thank you both so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Alex, I'll start with you. Can you kind of give us uh, your sense 
of what's going on here and, and just exactly how much danger we are in. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a situation, which everyone listening is quite aware of, where Russia has, uh, you know, actively initiated real boots on the ground conflict. This isn't a, you know, shadowy Russian funded groups. This isn't some sort of dubious or real, you know, independent movement or something like that. This is Russian troops, Russian arms going across Russian borders and Belarusian borders, um, trying to uh, take down a sovereign state under fairly ridiculous <laughs> ridiculous pretexts. And this sovereign state in particular is one that it's had, you know, closer and closer ties to the West over time, um, has floated the idea of joining NATO over time, which is part of the pretext for this whole thing. And so you, it has a lot of allies and, and I, it's not a formal ally of NATO, but it's, it's, it's quickly shaping up that that's more what they would like to do. And so that really makes this, I think, quite different than some of the other conflicts we've had uh, in recent years. Uh, most of those other conflicts have been sort of proxy conflicts or have been these sort of plausible deniability oh, we're not really Russians, and everybody knows they're Russians, but we're all willing to play the plausible deniability game for a little bit um, because it avoids the possibility of escalation. But now we have you know, significant military movements in a country that is bordered by other uh, uh, countries that have various alliances, and, uh, and, it, and it really does feel, I don't think just for me, but it, it feels like the Russians have dramatically escalated They've been doing all sorts of offensive things for a while, but this feels uh, like another level of it. And to have it being done in, in Europe seems particularly dire. So th this is why there's such a, a real fear that both the Russians have escalated things up quite a bit. They've escalated their rhetoric up and, and they have been sort of avoiding every offering given to them. So you, you end up saying, well, what are we going to do about this? And it's not surprising that a lot of people uh, in the West are very frustrated by this. And they basically are saying, well, we need to do if they're going to escalate, we have to escalate or are saying things like, well, the only acceptable off-ramp is regime change, and that's not really a, a, a viable <laughs> thing to offer up to Putin. And, and so you can see why this looks like it has the possibility of, of sort of direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. And if that is the case, then you're going to start wondering who's going to decide to use a tactical nuclear weapon first or who is going to potentially screw up and use one. Or, you know, there's a lot of possibilities for things going wrong where you have these two sort of nuclear armed uh, organizations. So that, I mean, that's my read of the situation and, and it's, it's not a good one because, you know, it'd be one thing if we were offering up off ramps and the Russians seemed kind of interested in them, but they're, they're in, they're still in a stage of high aggression. They, they think that they can sort of, they, they think that they seem to think that if they're extraordinarily aggressive, that the West will be the one that consistently blinks Um and that might be true up to a point, but with the financial sanctions and things like that, it's 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 pretty dicey. So that's my read. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it certainly does seem, from my perspective, that uh, there are a lot of options on the table as far as like what's going to happen here. You know, in the next weeks, months, uh, years. I mean, who knows how long this is going to go on for? 
uh, this kind of standoff. But uh, as you say, the potential for it escalating to the point of a a major conflict where one uh, one or the other side decides to drop a tactical nuke and then kind of escalates it further or sets off a complete conflagration. It, it only increases with every like hour uh, that this goes on. Jessica, um, what's, what's your read of the situation and kind of, can you give people just an overview of what global zero does as well? Because I think that, I think that's kind of important context as well. Yeah, sure. And thank you so much for, for having me on. It's always, um, weird to see when you get a lot of attention, especially at Global Zero and the work that we do to um, reduce the risk of nuclear war and work to eliminate for the verifiable elimination of nuclear weapons. When you're getting a lot of attention, it's usually not a great time for international security. Um, but I appreciate um, you inviting me to speak here. Um, in terms of the actual situation with Ukraine, I think um, I, I very much agree with Dr. Wellerstein um, we're really seeing a breakdown in this belief that some had that was pretty prevalent that nuclear weapons promote stability on the international stage. What Putin's illegal war is showing is that nuclear weapons not only make situations like this more dangerous, they, they played a key role in creating them. You know, Putin is, is weaponizing nuclear risk and hiding behind Russia's nuclear arsenal um, in order to invade Ukraine and keep the U.S. and NATO at bay. Um, and so, you know, as the war in Ukraine kind of proves more difficult than Russia, Russia had thought originally um, with the Ukrainian resistance and the sanctions, the unprecedented sanctions that are happening in the international community really rallying in a way that I don't think Putin expected. Um, there is a risk that it just kind of pushes Putin further and further into the corner. And, you know, does that mean that he's going to be leaning in more to um, these nuclear threats, this nuclear belligerence and bullying that we're seeing? Um, and every time he does that, that increases the risk of nuclear use by miscalculation or unintended escalation um, and, and again, like Dr. Wellerstein said, um, it's not clear what the off-ramp for Putin is beyond complete surrender of Ukraine. Um, and so at Global Zero, we are trying the best we can to, to just educate people and, and speak out on the real risks of nuclear use. We do want to say, of course, or I do want to say, of course, that you know, the probability or, you know, if you're going to percent it out, the risk of, of nuclear use is relatively low right now. Um, but when you are talking about weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, any risk, no matter how small, is completely unacceptable and, and, and too high, especially when there are steps we can take we should have taken before and we can take now to reduce that risk. We should be, nuclear armed leaders should be taking every step they can to reduce the risk of nuclear use. Um, and, you know, the U.S. and NATO countries have been pretty disciplined and, and pretty good at not playing into Putin's hands when it comes to nuclear weapons. They have kind of basically said, you know, we're not going to indulge Putin on this. And, and I think that's right. I think 
what they can do though is go a step further and make it clear that nuclear weapons are off the table when it comes to Ukraine and that the United States will not be the first to use nuclear weapons um, should this conflict spill over into direct conflict between Russia and NATO. Yeah, I, 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 I quoted you saying that as well um, in the newsletter, and I thought that that was a very uh, interesting point to make and, and uh, kind of suggestion. How, how do you think that that would manifest itself and and what would be the motivation for uh the west to do that just because i i i think that of course like that would be great like it'll be it'd be awesome if that happened just you know to have at least one side say we're not going to take that step um but i think a lot of a lot of western leaders including in the u.s i mean the like the implicit threat of of nuclear annihilation has been kind of in the background of a lot of these super of the way that these superpowers engage with the rest of the world over the last like 60, 70 years. Um, so how would you sell them on the utility of that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, because when you start to say you need to take nuclear weapons off the table, people just hear that you're taking something off the table. Um, but the reality is that the greatest risk of nuclear use today comes from unplanned or unintended escalation. And so when you have um, NATO and Russian forces operating in close proximity to each other in Eastern Europe, you know, it just takes that one mistake, you know, if someone sneezes or whatever, or, you know, there's a very close interaction and there's a miscalculation and you are now spiraling quickly. Um, and what, what no first use does is creates some transparency and some clarity in how the U.S. views how it's going to use their nuclear weapons. And of course, you know, a commitment and words are one thing, um, and, but backing up that commitment by saying we are not going, we are going to take our weapons off alert. We are, um, we are not going to be um, forward posturing, basically, um, and really talking to our allies to understand what the real risks of nuclear use are here, because very often in our conversations about strategic stability with, with our allies and even with, within our own government, within the U.S. government, I should say, um, those risks of nuclear use go underestimated a lot of times um, and underappreciated. And the fact of the matter is the U.S. and NATO have conventional, they have non-military tools that they are using, and they have other tools as well that are better suited to deter Russia in this sense. Our nuclear weapons should only be to deter a nuclear attack on the U.S. and its allies. We do not need them to, to for anything else other than that. Got it. Now, uh, Dr. Wellerstein, I'm, I'm curious as to... Uh you know, your take on that, um, especially, you know, looking at it from the historian's uh, point of view, uh, do you think that there is a place for that kind of a commitment from, from the West and from NATO? Uh, or, or do you think that they're probably going to take a different approach? I mean, or rather, if, if they're going to take a different approach, um, how, how would you say that they could maybe be convinced to change their mind on that? Well, historically, the, the re, a lot of the opposition to any kind of no first use pledge has come from American allies in 
Europe and also in, in Asia, where the argument, the fear is by the allies is that if, if there isn't that sort of backstop, that the Russians or the Chinese in the case of Asia could decide to just launch a massive conventional uh, invasion and they wouldn't have the wherewithal to, to, you know, they're, they're suddenly plunged into a really nasty war and they're not going to have the ability to convince them, the Russians not to do this. And, you know, essentially what, what we're seeing in Ukraine. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the Germans don't want that <laughs> for good reason. And you, you can make the argument that, well, you don't need to have nukes on the table to make it seem like that would be a bad idea for the Russian. That says, look, we're not going to be the first ones to use nukes. If you use nukes, you know, good luck, right? All, all bets are off, but we won't be the first ones to use it. But if you do, uh, you know, undertake conventional attack on a over NATO borders or something like that, you will get a full conventional response that will not necessarily stop at, you know, the edge of the border, which, <laughs> and, and that itself could be an escalating move if the Russians aren't, aren't, aren't as, you know, sure about their own not first, non first use. But uh, all, all I'm saying is you're, you're sort of pushing the, the sort of, argument against it into a slightly different domain, which I, I don't have a problem with personally. I, I think that would actually be a totally fine statement to say and say, look, we have adequate conventional forces to deal with the Russian army. If you combine NATO with uh, you know, the United States and things like that, it, especially now that we're out of some of our commitments in the Middle East, you, you can imagine making a plausible argument that if, if Russia was going to do that to a NATO ally, that you could successfully fight them off without the need for tactical nuclear weapons or anything like that. Um, and, I, and I feel like that would be a fair thing to do, but that, you'd have to coordinate that again with the allies and make sure they felt good about that. At the moment, I feel like you might be able to, to actually have traction on that because you're, you're seeing a level of sort of unity amongst the Europeans and, uh, that, that we haven't seen in a while. Uh, and, and I think that that's a, a, something that could be capitalized on in a positive way and say, look, we're all in this together uh let's let's agree that, that these will be the terms we're going to offer up with the knowledge that you could have russia say great we're not afraid of you now we're going to encourage go into other countries but with the sort of confidence that you could conventionally knock them back but th that's historically been the the difficulty with those kinds of pledges and I, i'm not against them in any way i i think it's actually implicit that we're certainly not going to be using strategic nuclear weapons first in this kind of situation. I, I don't think anybody would. I, I don't think even the most feverish Russian paranoia thinks that Biden is going to launch all the Minutemans or something like that. It just doesn't isn't very plausible if if you have the slightest understanding of of that of of the mindset of him or the people around him. Um, officially, we always keep nukes on the table because we want the Russians not to feel confident that if they do something, there won't be a somewhat disproportionate response uh, with the hope that that would keep them um, under wraps a bit. I don't know if that's true. I mean, it, it feels at the moment like Russia is assuming that they're the ones who are going to be pushing the envelope and not the West. And that sort of this whole invasion of Ukraine is predicated on that idea that, that, that they are willing to, move their aggression into a much more or, or much more overt state than it's been in for the last decade and so 
um, which is not to downplay the things they did over the last decade or so. But this is, I think, a, a qualitatively and quantitatively much more aggressive stepping over what might be perceived as a red line to see what happens. Um, but yeah, I think that that could help a bit, though it would have potential other effects as well. If you would it intensify the Russian uh, efforts in Ukraine? I don't know. When you say no first use, do you mean that uh, you're all you're, you're limiting it only nuclear weapons, or what happens if Russia used some other kind of horrible weapon, weapon of mass destruction? Uh, you know, the, I, I'm not I'm not objecting against it. I'm just pointing out these are the kinds of things that someone in the military or the government would start bringing up immediately. Uh, and the answer to these will depend on negotiations, not just amongst the United States, but, but its allies and things like that. And there's also, I would say, a, there, there could be a domestic political cost for making that kind of statement. It, it sounds very straightforward to you and me to do this. Um, uh, you can easily imagine political uh, enemies of the Biden administration taking this as a sign of weakness, playing into that kind of narrative, even if it's a even if it's not weakness, even if it's a if it's a goal for stability, which is a non-escalation, which is better for everybody. But anyway, I, I can see that it's not surprising to me they haven't done that, is I guess what I'm saying, because uh, it's 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 it can be pretty complicated politically, both domestically and internationally, even if that's probably the assumed policy that they're operating under. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, there are are so many other factors uh, going into this, including domestic politics. Um, Alex, just want to stay with you for a second. Uh, you know, just to ask, as somebody who's who's been studying this stuff for decades, um, and you know, obviously, uh, I mean, I'm going to assume that you have been paying a lot of attention to uh, Putin, especially because he's been the leader of Russia, you know, for for over 20 years at this point. Um, when you look at his actions in this war and 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 his just the pattern of his behavior over over the past 20 plus years. Do you think that he is likely and, and, and that the Russian state is likely to do a first strike here? Uh, do you think it's just saber rattling uh, and, and, and in as much as this kind of stuff can even be predicted or, or uh, uh, opined on in any kind of way, you know, that, that, that makes sense? I, I think the difficult thing here is that you're talking about one person's brain really and it's one of the difficulties with any system that concentrates that much authority in one person uh and and nuclear weapons are that kind of system though it may not be literally putin's only authority in russia what we know about the russian system suggests that he would need to get one other person on board with things but it's not clear that um uh uh, that that's true in practice. Who you know? Who knows how that would actually play out? But let's let's just imagine they have a system like ours, where one person, in this case Putin, uh, is in charge of that essential decision. Um, what is his mental state right now? What is his mindset? It's not really clear. And there's been a lot of sort of attempts by Russianologists to sort of read the tea leaves of these press conferences and these pictures and the giant table um, that he has, which, uh, uh, you know, with his, which, which is very odd um, and, uh, you know, trying to make sense of, of what he's been up to and thinking and what led to this sort of feeling that there was this rapid acceleration of, of, of aggression. Um, I don't know. Uh, it could be part of some very rational plan. 
it could be entirely flying by the seat of his pants. It could be motivated by very irrational. And I don't mean that in, in just a, uh, I'm not saying he's crazy though. You know, you never know. Mental illness is a real thing with everybody. Um, but what I'm, what I'm saying is it could be some sort of well thought out thing, or it could be some sort of emotional decision. And sometimes emotional decisions are good, but in situations like this, often not. Um, I, I don't think we know, and that's that's part of the thing that makes it difficult. Now, do I think that it is likely that Putin is going to decide that he's going to um, do some sort of massive nuclear attack that would result in the destruction of the entire country and everything he values? Probably not, because people who get into that kind of position are not usually suicidal. Um, they, they usually like the life they have, but and it's easier not to do that. But but you know you never know. Uh, it's always a possibility. People are not rational actors, not individually. Um, could he decide that the real way, if 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 say these sanctions become too onerous, or if it, for example, if it looks like other nations are giving too much military assistance to Ukraine and it's really causing him problems, or if there's something, say, domestically happens in Russia, let's imagine there's some sort of terrorist attack in Russia at this time, and he blames the it on the West, rightly or wrongly, right, uh, or something of, of that nature. Could he decide that the next step in getting the 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 West to back down is to use a low yield nuclear weapon uh, in a way that would not be as obviously a war crime as some uses, right? Not on a city, but on some remote area or even just a demonstration of it. Uh, I don't think that there's any reason to think that's off the table. I'm not saying I think it's likely, but I, I think anybody who's going to argue, well, he would never do that. They're, they're sort of saying that out of horror <laughs> with the idea, not out of uh, a real analysis. That's not to say I think that there's a high possibility of him doing that, but I will say that Putin and has been over time steadily pushing the envelope in various ways on what is considered to be proper conduct by a leader of a state and sovereign state. Um, he's been doing things that are, by any definition, highly aggressive and provocative. Um, and again, it's not on the same level as using a nuclear weapon, but, you know, the nerve gas stuff in Britain, the polonium poisoning, the, uh, you know, this kind of thing really is deliberately provocative. And, and I just bring this up, not because it's comparable to a nuclear weapon, but you know, there's only one state that's going to provide the polonium to poison somebody. You don't need nerve gas to poison people. That's a that's a flamboyant move meant to intimidate. You can kill people. You can assassinate your rivals in much easier, quieter ways. The fact that he's doing this on foreign soil with weapons of mass destruction, essentially, uh, even if not applied to mass destruction, is him signaling, look what I'm able to do. Look what I'm willing to do. Look what I can get away with. So a person like that, what limits do they feel that they have? What norms do they feel they have to obey? What taboos do they subscribe to or not? I don't think we know, but I think he's trying to tell us that he doesn't. And that could be all an act. It could be what they call the madman theory, right? Act like you're in a really aggressive, crazy person and people will assume you'll do the worst thing. Um, uh, uh, or it could be real. And I don't know how we tell the difference. <laughs> and I don't know how you respond to that without if you are worried about escalation, and I would be, you have to be very careful. And I will say I, I'm very satisfied 
at the moment with the way that Europe and the United States have dealt with this. It has been a very even hand on the whole. It's been devastating consequences for the economy. It's been helping the Ukrainians in very direct and meaningful ways. Uh, it's been dealing with the humanitarian aspect. It's been really acing the sort of information warfare game. And that's important, right? The, the messaging is, is, is pretty good uh, on this front. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that they continue this kind of even approach, which is just putting more and more pressure and making it more and more uh, unsustainable. But will that achieve the result? I don't know. Will Putin's response to that be more escalation? Who can say? I mean, only he knows that. Right. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That was that, that was rather thorough. And I think that the I think the point about kind of pushing the envelope is, is really important because uh, it, it is it's a, it is a logical diplomatic uh, tactic. Uh, you know, it, it the way that it manifests itself, I think, is is often quite distasteful, especially, you know, in, in this case, with, you know, with the poisoning and the assassinations, uh, certainly. Uh, but there is, uh, you're right. Like there is a logical through line to it, to what he's doing. It's it's not it's it's not coming out of nowhere. Jessica, I, I just wanted to move to you because uh, when we were talking yesterday before, uh, you know, while we were kind of doing prep for the show, uh, you said, and this is just a, a very short, uh, you know, five word line, but but I thought it was really interesting. I was hoping you could tease it out a little bit more. Uh, you said Putin has weaponized nuclear risk. Uh, and I think that that is a really interesting uh, concept. Can you kind of explain a little bit more what you mean? Because it sounds to me, and, and, and I may have this wrong, and I'm hoping that you can explain it more, uh, but it seems to me like you're saying that it, he doesn't even really need to use it at this point. It's just the fact that he could, and he's using that kind of as a cudgel. Is that is that a good read of what you're saying? And can you kind of just explain uh, generally how you see him using it, not only in this situation, but also uh, previously? Yeah. Um, so I think that what we're seeing is probably a little bit more of an overt use of of kind of weaponizing that nuclear risk when it comes to Ukraine. And we've, we've seen that in, in the lead up to the invasion um, with the nuclear war exercises and the him sitting at a table with the Belarusian president um, and overseeing this nuclear war exercise. Um, we saw it in Putin's announcement of the invasion where he made a, some call it thinly veiled, other call it not at all veiled um, threats um, to any country that inter interfered um, that they would be seen with consequences, you know, the likes of which have not been seen. Um, and you see it again when it isn't going, things are not going the way that Putin wants um, and he is facing all of these sanctions. He is facing a very united um, uh, NATO um, and Western response, um, as well as Ukrainian resistance that he wasn't, I don't think, expecting. And he says, well, NATO, you are making aggressive statements. And so I am going to order our nuclear weapons on alert. Now, the United States has said um, we haven't seen movement, <clears throat> excuse me, um, on 
the Russian nuclear forces. So I don't think we're necessarily quite sure what that statement meant, if something has changed in the Russian nuclear forces or if it was just, you know, bluster. Um, but he is basically hiding behind this nuclear arsenal in order to to keep the U.S. and NATO directly out of conflict with Russia um, and to limit their movements because the U.S. and Russia understand the risk of direct conflict. And he's using that as a shield to then go and attempt to take Ukraine as part of Russia. And I think, you know, I think this is a new evolution of that weaponization of nuclear risk. Um, I mean, previously, it's been mostly like proxy wars um, in Syria, in Afghanistan, um, where, you know, we might have uh, the U.S. Uh, might not have escalated or even Russia might not have escalated to direct conflict because you are now saying there's going to be direct conflict between nuclear powers. And, and you know, we don't want that. But this um, so-called it's it's the stability instability paradox where there's the so-called stability at the overarching level at the strategic nuclear weapons use level um, that creates a stalemate. But then it gives um, nuclear weapon powers room at this lower level to engage in conflict um, and use those nuclear weapons as a shield. And I think that, um, I think that's what we're, we're, I mean, that is what we're seeing in Ukraine. And so I think the response to that, unfortunately, from some is going to be, well, the U.S. needs, you know, lower yield nuclear weapons to be able to create a stalemate at the lower level. And that is exactly the opposite um, um, lesson that we should be learning here. Because if we are now accepting that we need nuclear weapon to be able to use nuclear weapons at a lower level of conflict, that increases the room for risk and escalation and you are now trying to say, as opposed to the reaffirmation that the U.S. and Russia have done twice within a year to say a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, we are going to plan to fight and use nuclear weapons because we believe we can win a war. And we believe that we can control escalation um, and, and this is this is what U.S. policy is is really kind of based upon. Our approach to nuclear policy right now really is predicated on nuclear war fighting. And what I'm what I fear is that this situation will will lead to lo louder calls for increased defense spending. Um, increased investment in new nuclear capabilities for quote unquote small nuclear weapons. Um, but if you ask any military leader, a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. And if you cross the threshold, you've crossed the threshold and, and you know, all bets are off at that point. And so what I think the lessons we need to take from this is we need to see the strength in restraint and see the strength in, in, coming together to take steps to reduce the risk of nuclear use and to verifiably eliminate nuclear weapons. Because the only way 
we are going to eliminate the nuclear threat is to eliminate the weapons. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, j just before I move to the next one, um, uh, both Alex and I have a hard 2 p.m. Eastern time uh, cutoff here. So if anybody wants to join in and has, has a question, uh, just get in the queue and we'll take you. But otherwise, we're totally fine just having the, the three of us chat here. Uh, Jessica, just to stay with you for a sec, um, you know, one of the reasons that I was so interested in discussing this was I saw that your uh, colleague Derek Johnson uh, tweeted on the February 27th that Belarus inviting nuclear weapons onto its territory is the most alarming thing I've seen in my entire professional career. Uh, you know, this uh, this happened. This was a new uh, constitutional amendment uh, passed by the country. Uh, Belarus is obviously a, a big ally of Russia, if not just, you know, a, a straight-up client state. Um, but uh, putting nuclear weapons into another country, uh, you know, adding – Adding to the number, as you were saying, like you know, small yield or big yield, it doesn't it doesn't matter. You're still adding, um, but putting them in in another country does seem like even a further escalation. Uh, do you agree with Derek that it is this alarming? And can you kind of explain uh, why it's so dangerous to to expand to yet another country here? Yeah, um, it, it is it is alarming, um, and. I think it's alarming because if you it's, it's starting to bring forces even closer together and you're starting to decrease flight times um, from missile launch to to target. Um, and so you are then squeezing the amount of time that a an opponent has to react and and basically just it destabilizes the, the situation even more. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me. Belarus's move is a signal to other countries as well that, hey, you might need to talk about putting nuclear weapons in your country. So when it comes to the U.S. nuclear umbrella um, and, and our native states and also Japan and South Korea, Australia, you know, are those governments going to say, well, Russia just moved nuclear weapons to Belarus you know, Poland might say, we need nuclear weapons in Poland, you know, get them here now. Or the Baltic states might feel that. And, and again, it's just giving nuclear weapons a bigger and bigger role in national security um, when we should be doing the opposite. And you've seen even um, Japan, the former prime minister, I should say, um, Prime Minister Abe, um, brought up, hey, should I think Japan should be talking about having nuclear weapons, um, U.S. nuclear weapons on its territory. Now, the the current prime minister put a kibosh on that, luckily, and said, you know, that's that's not a step Japan is is going to be taking right now. But but the um, all of these moves are really, um, you know, some countries are going to start saying, do we either need U.S. nuclear weapons on our territory or you know, you see Ukraine, do we actually need nuclear weapons ourselves? Because if we don't, nuclear powers are going to use their nuclear weapons as a shield, attack us for whatever reason, and we have no way to defend ourselves. And so this, this situation in this war has some really intense implications on basically 
the entire international global nuclear nonproliferation regime and all of the international norms and taboos that have been set in place for decades are being threatened. And, and we need to guard against the unraveling of those norms and taboos. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, of course, this is not the first time that this has happened, uh, you know, back in 2003. Um, and, and thereafter, uh, you know, given that Iraq was attacked and North Korea and Iran, which which uh, ostensibly has had its own program, were not. Uh, that message was also quite clear. Although this is uh, perhaps uh, maybe maybe more of an escalation, or or at least it's just more fresh. Um, Alex, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about um, Belarus's history as far as having nuclear weapons on its territory, and also Ukraine's as well, right? I mean, like the two of them, and I, it was a Kazakhstan as well, was it, was the other one that had them on? Yeah, I mean, there were a number of these Soviet uh, republics that hosted nuclear weapons, and there were even some uh, Warsaw State packs that, that, that had tactical nuclear weapons in them during the Cold War. Um, it, 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 it's hard. I, I, I totally agree with Jessica that it's it's one of these situations where it's like moving in the wrong direction. It's tricky because, of course, our NATO relies on the basing of American <laughs> nuclear weapons in several countries there, though they don't talk about it that much. But there's you know nuclear weapons in the Netherlands, for example, uh, and and it's it's all of that sort of this tricky both a tricky strategic game of saying, look, we could get especially little nukes to you very quickly, um, even bigger ones, depending on your weapon system. But also, if you dared to invade us, you'd be invading not just a somebody under a nuclear umbrella, but somebody with their weapons, which would, would bump up the... Uh, the stakes of it quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, uh, the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons in Ukraine, in Belarus, and in Kazakhstan. When the Soviet Union collapsed, um, those weapons were transferred to Russia. Famously, Ukraine sort of held off on that transfer a little bit longer than the others until they got a declaration in 1996 that essentially said that They'll be happy to transfer these nuclear weapons back to Russia so long as they have guarantees that nobody's going to invade them. And if they do get invaded, that the uh, other countries will come to their aid, which, of course, has been brought up quite a bit uh, in the last week because a lot of people have sort of framed this as maybe they shouldn't have given up their nukes if if in and, you know, how valuable is a piece of paper for uh, for defense Um and I will say, and, and other people have pointed this out, it, it's not clear that if they had kept the nukes, they would have been able to use the nukes. It takes quite a lot of uh, infrastructure to uh, run nuclear weapons. Most of that infrastructure was in Russia. The weapons themselves have codes and authorization and all sorts of things like that, which was, uh, it's not clear that Ukrainians actually had those. They could have potentially taken some of that infrastructure and dismantled it and rebuilt it, essentially. And they do have pretty significant nuclear, say, fuel capabilities if they want to with the reactors they have and things like that. But it would have been a massive, massive investment um, at a time in which Ukraine was was not in a position to make that investment and uh, uh, 
and it would have been strongly, strongly opposed by not just Russia, but the West and pretty much everybody. So I, I think that's sort of a non-starter, but it does bring up this question of how important nuclear weapons are. And it's it, it also underlines, and this is also a sort of version of Jessica's point, though it's, it's not as happy a version, but it, it underlines the need to have non-nuclear based security that's credible. And if you're going to make the argument that nuclear weapons are not necessary for states to maintain their security and sovereignty, you have to have a plausible way for them to stand up to nuclear states and uh, also to non-nuclear states in their own way. And so um, we're seeing some of that, again, playing out in the Western attempts to punish Russia for what it's doing and uh, shore up Ukraine and help them out, though even that is going to seem, if you're, if you're pitting that idea, that reality up against the sort of fantasy of Ukraine kept its nuclear weapons and is living this perfect world and is unchallengeable, it's going to look a lot uh, less appealing. Uh, you could imagine a version of the Ukraine kept its nuclear weapons that's a lot more dangerous. <laughs> as well, right? Like it doesn't necessarily get you, when you're dealing with these hypotheticals, it's easy to imagine one as being a sort of perfect world and the other one is not. Um, With Belarus, it would be, you know, if they base nuclear weapons there, does it change everything? I would say in a practical sense, not really. Um, uh, Would it be a good thing? No. (laughs) Does Belarus need nuclear weapons to be based there to avoid being invaded? I don't think so. (laughs) So, I mean, there's a way in which this feels to me like it's really just meant to be a criticism of NATO nuclear basing. That doesn't make it an incorrect criticism. I mean, one of the whole reasons, just to dive a little further back in history, one of the instigating moments for the Cuban Missile Crisis was uh, those Uh, American nuclear weapons placed really close to Soviet borders in Turkey and the Soviet Union saying, well, if they can put their missiles right there, why can't we put them next to their borders? And that spirals the world into near nuclear conflict. Um, There there is an argument to be made that I I don't want to say it's it's quite the golden rule, but but if you don't want them to put nuclear weapons in their states, you should not put them in yours. But this gets into the complicated situation with NATO and its own, you know, what it needs to feel plausible and relevant. And 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 that's not an idle question. I mean, in the, under the last administration, you had a president who was sort of openly doubting whether NATO should exist <laughs> and whether it should be supported and whether they're pulling their weight and whether the United States would honor security agreements. And, and people were saying at that time, excuse me, if you that down this line <laughs> leads to lots more nuclear states pretty clearly, because if you're saying we don't have your back, then everybody's going to think they have their own back. So I, I think all of this is, again, just pointing out how important it is to make sure that the messaging on these things is consistent and credible. If you want anybody to believe that they don't need nuclear weapons for their security, you need to have an alternative framework in place that is going to make them feel secure. You can't just tell them don't feel insecure because they have good reasons to feel like there's bad actors in the world. Right. Right. I mean, I think that it, especially speaking uh, 
as as I am and as as, as the three of us are uh, from a, a nuclear superpower, um, that's just not a. Uh, it's just not like a, like a, like something that's hanging over the way that we interact with the world. We like we just don't think that that uh, we're going to be under threat by a larger, more powerful uh, country that could you know just basically. Uh, blow us to hell. Um, I do have a question from the audience uh, for both you. And then I think that, you know, in the last couple of minutes, maybe we just move on to uh, denuclearization and talk a little bit more about both of your work. But, um, and it is just kind of a, a straight up question. Um, and this is from Mike. He says, uh, straight up, uh, gun to your head, where would you rank the likelihood of a nuclear war uh, spiraling out of this? And uh, Alex, I'll go to you first and then, and then Jessica. I, I hate the where do you rank. I, I don't even know how you express these things. And if I said 10%, what does that even mean? If we reran today 10 times, we'd get it? I don't know. So I, I would qualitatively, because I'm a historian, I'm not, I, I deal with qualitative things. I would say we are um, higher than we were a month ago. <laughs> but I, I am personally less worried than I was with the North Korea crisis of 2016 of a nuclear weapon being used. So um, that's not great because I was actually pretty worried at that point. Um, but uh, uh, I, I don't rank it higher than that um, for whatever that is worth. Um, though it is, I think, higher than it ought to be under any circumstances. And frankly, to get the denuclearization argument, it, even our baseline is higher than it ought to be. But that's that. So so that's where I would put it. Got it. And uh, Jessica, what's your feeling? Um, I kind of I kind of take the same tact that it's difficult to quantify and it kind of like what's what's our scale here. Um, but, yeah, I, I do want to reiterate just that, you know, the probability of nuclear use is 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 small. Um, we don't want to, you know, catastrophize here. Um, but again, any any risk of nuclear use is too much. And so, while I, I in the current context that we are in, I don't believe that we will be spiraling to to nuclear use. Um, but that can change in an hour that can change in a day um it can change very quickly so you know i don't don't know what the future holds exactly yeah there's there's like a a very 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 low level ambient risk that as you say is 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 way too high um so uh just the last 10 minutes here uh, alex i was hoping that you could um talk about nuke map um and oh actually we have a call let's let's take this call real quick first and then um and if we have time, we'll go back to that. Go ahead. Hi. Just uh, with regards to uh, historical risk of nuclear weapon use, how would you – I know you didn't like the, the concept of ranking, but let's put it this way. In terms of uh, seriousness or, um, or basically the likelihood in the past of – for example, General MacArthur's plan to use tactical nukes to end the uh, North Korean conflict or the quote-unquote madman strategy during Vietnam with Nixon and, uh, and Kissinger. Uh, were those, you know, would you consider those historically to have been serious risks or were those really just um, bluster? Thanks. Uh, yeah, Alex, you want to go ahead and take that? Uh, I, you know, when, when it comes to 
Korean War, I I don't think it's that high of a risk of them being used. Um, I, I think if MacArthur, if it had been up to him, it'd be a very high risk. But it was not up to him. It was up to Truman. And for various interesting and complex reasons, which I'm hoping my next book will be about, uh, Truman, it was was pretty dead set against the possibility of using nuclear weapons, which sort of set everything else. If it had been a different president, if it had been Eisenhower, uh, you probably would have had nuclear weapons being used in the Korean War. But as it was, Truman, despite being the only president to have used nuclear weapons after Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, was extraordinarily, um, and, and I say that based on the people who surrounded him and his military advisors and things, he was very averse to using nuclear weapons. When it comes to Vietnam, I do think that Nixon is bluster. Uh, he, I don't think he really had um, any serious interest in doing that sort of thing. There ha- was very little discussion internally about the possibility of using weapons. It, it was assumed that the uh, not only would you not get that much out of using them, um, and that would actually devalue everything. If you use nukes and you don't end the war, now you've just moved the, 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 the bar and you haven't gotten anything for it. Uh, and then secondly, uh, that the international outcry would be too large. And the United States was already dealing with so much international uh, unfavorable opinion during the Vietnam War and relied very heavily on its allies for things like logistics and things of that nature. So uh, it was never really on the table. When I rank things, for me, it's the Cuban Missile Crisis, number one by far, no doubt. Um, I do think the crises of uh, the crises of 1983 are pretty high up there for uh, uh, nuclear war, uh, and then after that, it's harder to rank. But I would put I put the North Korea. What we'll see is archives open up in the future how much. But my rule of thumb is whatever it looks like in person <laughs> to those of us not with security clearances, it's probably about twice as bad behind the scenes. And it looked pretty bad in uh, 2016, 2017 uh, with North Korea. Um, that's pretty high. Uh, I'm hoping this is significantly lower than that where we are now, but but it's 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 still got to be elevated. So, Got it. And uh, oh, Jessica, do you, want to, do you want to respond to that as well? Yeah, if I can just real quick, I think what what Dr. Wellerstein said is really um, puts an important point on the fact that whether or not you, nuclear weapons are used is incredibly dependent on a small number of people and who those people are and what they think. And in the United States, I think for the United States, that means really think about these issues when you are voting. Um, but you know, for other other countries, it is a little bit more precarious, of course. But I think that's really important is that we are putting the power of nuclear weapons in the hands of very few people, and they all right now happen to be men. Um, and and what does that mean for for nuclear risk? Definitely. So, um, Chris, we're going to take you and and just uh, please just limit your your question to you know about like sixty seconds at the most if you can. Thank you. Uh, sure thing. Thanks, Owen. Um, you talked a little bit about the Cuban Missile Crisis and North Korea in twenty sixteen. How would you compare this, I guess, if uh, you may have gone into this before, but how would you compare what we're facing right now to the Cuban Missile Crisis? If that's like a 50% chance, then where would you rank us today? Uh, Significantly lower. Uh, Again, I, I would put us underneath the North Korean crisis today, and I would put that 
several brackets down from the Cuban Missile Crisis, though in terms of probability, I think it, it was pretty high, maybe similar to the Cuban Missile Crisis, but in terms of consequences, uh, North Korean crisis was, was a lot lower. But uh, uh, I, I, I don't know how to do it in numbers, but I, I think of these as sort of qualitative brackets. And I, I would put where we are today below North Korean crisis somewhere, but higher than usual. Yes, that's not, uh, I mean, that's better. But, <laughs> could be worse. Yeah, it could, could be worse. So, um, so yeah, we, uh, we have four minutes left, so I'm just going to do this real quick. Uh, Alex, can you just tell people a little bit about NukeMap and also about uh, your other work, your, you know, your books and, and, and where people can find all of that stuff, please? Sure. NukeMap uh, is a uh, online nuclear weapons effects simulator. If you Google NukeMap, you'll find it. Hopefully by tomorrow or so, the website won't be as under as much strain as it's been under for the last week, and it'll be easier to work. Um, you can find out more information at it uh, about it if you go to nuclearsecrecy.com. That's my blog. It's also where everything is sort of posted. And if you're very inclined to learn a lot more about nuclear history, uh, especially secrecy in nuclear history, uh, my book, Restricted Data, the History of uh, um, Nuclear Secrecy in the United States uh, came out last year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fun for the whole family. Great gift. Um, oh, and I'll, and I'll say one nice thing about the, the Nuke map. Um, I want to just do a shout out to Global Zero because they are paying for the server's fees and those are not insubstantial. So thank you, Global Zero. Oh, excellent. I, didn't, I, I did not know that connection, but that's great. Um, and uh, Jessica, just... Um, if people are interested in Global Zero's work and they want to support you guys and, and kind of support the the mission of denuclearization, like in general, you know, just beyond just this conflict, obviously, as you said, it's it's kind of on everyone's mind now, but it is uh, it is a, a a resting threat, kind of as it were. Uh, what what would you like them to do? What do you think is a good way for for people to get involved with this and and to and to help support Global Zero's work? Yeah, sure. So, of course, you can go to our website, globalzero.org. There's there's a bunch of um, analysis and policy recommendations for how we can move forward, both um, how the U.S. can move forward and how all nuclear-armed countries can move forward. We have our Global Zero Action Plan, which is a phased um, um, plan to get to zero Um we know we need to address a lot of security concerns um, and a lot of, you know, missile defense issues, conventional and superiority issues. And we need to engage um, nuclear um, uh, leaders in nuclear armed countries in order to do that. So our work is really focused on our now network of former military and diplomatic officials and engaging them and saying, OK, what are what is feasible at this point and, and what is that path to zero? Um, and we have that laid out on our website, and you can follow us on Twitter at Global Zero. Great. Uh, Alex Wallerstein, Associate Professor and Director of Science and Technology Studies at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, and Jessica Slate, Junior Partner for Strategy and Policy at Nuclear Disarmament Group Global Zero. Thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, this has been really, really educational and and has been uh, really helpful, I think, in in kind of tempering uh, paranoia and fear, especially mine, uh, you know, at, at, at this moment where, where things are really tense. So thank you both so much for joining us. Um, if you are listening on the app, please give the show a subscribe. And uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, we should have a special guest at the end of the week. But before that, we're going to be talking about the refugee crisis in Ukraine. So uh, we'll see you then. 
thanks everyone from listening and and thanks guys for joining us. All right, bye. Thanks a bunch.